Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Mary Ruddick. She is dubbed the Sherlock Holmes of Health. Mary Ruddick is a seasoned medical nutritionist, researcher, and philanthropist who specializes in metabolic, immune, and nervous system disorders. I'm excited to have her on because she, like myself, was diagnosed with dysautonomia. It's uh, an immune uh, system disorder that we're going to get more into. And I know a lot of you are struggling with chronic illnesses or invisible illnesses, and you have these random uh, you know, symptoms that no one else can see. And people say it's all in your head and it causes great anxiety and pain and worry. Uh, even, you know, taking a financial, uh, causing some financial, uh, strains. And so we're going to listen to Mary Ruddick and what her journey was and how we can navigate the, the pain and uncertainty and anxiety that comes with having an invisible illness. Welcome to the podcast, Mary Ruddick. Well, I'm, yes, I'm glad you yes. showed up on time. That, that's wonderful. Uh, I'm excited to have Thanks. you. We're already recording. Um, Great. The so I had COVID, and yeah. as I found, and then you know that wasn't a big deal. That was fine. And then all of a sudden, I had uh, what I thought was a heart attack at like eight thousand feet during a hike. Yeah. Um, and it took them like months to figure out I had asthma. Um, and then they found out that, um, I have dysautonomia. I've been diagnosed with dysautonomia. And so I was like, okay, cool. So w- what do I do for that? And they're like, we, we have no idea. We, we don't know. Drink water. Uh, don't do anything to trigger it. I was like, well, what triggers it? Well, you know, I don't know. It's a new thing. And I was like, no one knows anything. Like all these specialists, I have great insurance by the way, but, uh, it's, it's such a, a relatively new thing. One. And two, I realized like doctors know so little about nutrition and food. The one cardiologist I went to was like, just lose weight and go vegan. And I was like, that sounds a bit too, you know, simplistic. I could have got that off a magazine cover. But so I'm excited to have you on, Mary, because you too have been diagnosed with dysautonomia. And I, I follow you on Instagram. You live in your best life. You're hiking, you're kicking around, I see you swimming. And I was like, I need some of that. She looked like she got the answers. So for the listeners, can you explain what dysautonomia is and then kind of walk us through yes. your path? Well, first, I just want to say I'm so sorry that you have dealt with this because it is such a confusing, isolating, and defeating condition. You're right. There's not a lot of answers out there. I'm very grateful you got a diagnosis so early. It's happening faster and faster. When I got diagnosed, we were lucky if we got diagnosed in year seven or 10. Now it's much faster, I think, really because of long COVID. But what dysautonomia is, is a deregulation of the autonomic nervous system. So what that means in layman's terms is that the sympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system become imbalanced. There's about 15 different umbrella uh, branches from dysautonomia. So you can have different forms. Some are very mild. Some are very severe. And in the same person, it can go from mild to severe very quickly, actually almost overnight in some cases. Others will stay mild. Others will stay severe. So there's a great deal of range with it. But because it it is based and rooted in the nervous system and because the nervous system goes over the entire body, it can really elude 
doctors and they'll start to kind of piece the body apart and see if they can deal with each different segment. But realistically, what you're dealing with is, is the imbalance in the nervous system. And until you get at that imbalance, you continue to have these mercurial symptoms that move throughout the body. And when I say symptoms, they can be very disabling. I, do, I don't mean like, you know, a cough or a sneeze. It, it can be like your feet turning blue or um, suddenly your eyes aren't working. Uh, so very, they can be very significant or they can be more moderate, but none of them are comfortable. And of course, for the listeners out there, those who don't have it, and I hope most of you don't, uh, it's very confusing to the person who has it because five minutes from now, you can be very different than you are now. So you really lose confidence in your own body you and in your own self, actually. You don't feel like you can keep your word. You don't know what you can accomplish realistically. You don't know if you push yourself to do something if you could pay for it for a day or if it's for three months. So it's a very, it's a very confusing condition. Um, yeah. And all those things I've definitely experienced from the irregular heart beats to the uh, chest pains to one day I can climb a thousand stairs and the next day, like one flight of stairs seems like a daunting task. And yes. Well, what drew me to you is I've never been one to reach for a pill first. I've always sought out like a holistic uh, treatment and and methodologies. And and it from what I've read and what you've talked about is you are and probably one of the reasons why you're in Greece is that you're addressing these symptoms holistically, especially through food and nutrition. Can you share for us? Um, how you were diagnosed and what your symptoms were and then lead us yes. to the, the path that you're on now in terms of, of, of showing up with this, this, this glow that you got, like you got a, a baby in there or something. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. So my symptoms started with feeling like I was on a boat. So for me, mine was triggered by an infection. I started out as an athlete. I was a healthy kid. I didn't have health issues. I got a very serious infection when I was 18 and it went to the brain. Now we didn't know a lot of this at the time. We knew I had a very high fever and high fevers of course can damage the nervous system. So that's what was suspected at first, but my symptoms, it felt like I was, I was on a boat at all times, it was very hard to be vertical. When I was vertical, my legs would hurt. They would turn blue, fuchsia, and purple. They would also be very painful. It felt like the bones were kind of being crushed, especially at night. That got much worse to where I would take the kind of part out and just say they. it felt like they were being crushed. Um, I got very sleepy. I went from a high energy person who never used caffeine or anything to I could sleep for days. And I was always in this kind of fog. It was like the God of chaos had come down since I am in Greece. And, and it was very difficult to keep things clear. So right away, it became apparent that my initial studies of biology and standing in a lab were not going to be realistic with whatever I was dealing with. Uh, we were worried it was much more severe. In the first year, they thought it was things like lupus and MS because I was, I was losing the ability to move, but not everyone does. Um, also, substances became very different. So alcohol, if I even had a small amount, could make me black out. So the way that I would react to a medication or a substance or food became very different as well. Uh, 
those were the initial symptoms along with immune, immune symptoms. So I became prone to almost every infection in the beginning for the first three years. It was common for me to have an infection every month. After that, it switched, and this is very common with dysautonomia, to switch into the autoimmune branch, where you don't catch things. Instead, you start attacking your own tissue, right? Or at least that's the theory of autoimmunity, but that's what that's what we typically see. So for many years, I was kind of going in and out of hundreds of doctors' offices trying to figure it out. We did the Western medicine approach for six, seven years heavily. I, I was already eating healthier than my friends, we thought, and living healthier than my friends. And so we didn't think it was that. Um, but at year seven, I became fully bedbound. And really a year before that, I just rarely count it and couldn't, couldn't move without having these episodes, which I now know were seizures. I didn't know that at the time. There's a dysautonomic seizure that's very different than epileptic seizures. And really, I had been having those for a long time. So I became very, very frail. I dropped a lot of weight. I wasn't absorbing my food and I couldn't think or hold anything. So I, I really couldn't take care of myself. And at that point I went home and my parents took care of me and really spent no expense. They sent me to doctors all over from the president's doctor to all the big clinics. I had already been at Cleveland Clinic for years. And at that time I had so many different diagnoses because it had, as dysautonomia often does in the worst cases, gone to many of the organs, or I shouldn't say gone to the organs. What happens is, you see, the nervous system regulates everything we don't think about. So that's our vision, that's our digestion, that's our blood flow, that's our organ function, that's all of our hormonal functions, including our feel-good hormones. But think also to cortisol right? Melatonin, our sleep regulating hormones. So sleep is very much thrown off with this. So all of this had been deregulated. And so I had lots and lots of diagnoses at this point from kidney disease to liver disease, thyroid to thyroid diseases. Uh, I was put on a breathing machine and this was all from the blood not flowing to the organs correctly, right? That's, that's really where you get those, those issues in the organs. But the thing that was one of the worst for me was the neuropathy, the nerve damage, which happens from the, the lack of blood flow or the lack of proper blood flow through the legs and the arms and the abdomen. So you start to get neuropathy like a diabetic, the exact same kind. It's very, very painful. Medicine doesn't work for it. And so we had done the opposite as you, Leo. I wish I would have been as smart as you. We did the opposite. I was on so many medicines and there was a point where, you know, my family kind of came to visit, to say goodbye. I didn't have much time left and my parents and I just decided to try something else. And so that's where we started to look more at diet, at lifestyle, at mindset. And from there, it was like walking into a secret garden <laughs> and finding all of this knowledge of information and things that we hadn't tried when we thought we had tried it all. Wow. You know, I, I, I like to start off with the mindset piece because um, so many of my listeners, you know, even if you're not struggling with dysautonomia, we're, I feel like we're all struggling with something that we feel like we're dealing with on ourselves by ourselves or alone. And, yes. um, and then but, well, a lot of us are dealing with uncertainty and not knowing and in some type of pain or feeling some type of pressure 
what was the mindset you started to incorporate? Like, what, what did that, because so much, you hear so much about self-talking. I am powerful. I am a warrior princess. Like, what what was the mindset shift for you, Mary? Yeah, that didn't, that didn't work for me. I'm too realistic, I think. Uh, for me, I had to take life less seriously. I had read a case about, uh, I think, is it Bernie Siegel? I can't, no. A case about a man who had ankylosing spondylitis. And for those of you out there who are not familiar with ankylosing spondylitis, until very recently, that was a horrific diagnosis. <laughs> it was really very rare and pretty terrible. Basically, your body becomes like a tin man. Anyway, he was a doctor and he actually laughed himself into remission from this truly terrible and deadly condition. And so I was reading stories about that and I thought, you know what? I don't want to die having any bad feelings in my body. I've spent all this time in anger, all this time in frustration towards my body. I have very little time left. I want to appreciate. I want to totally fall in love with myself. And I want to, I want to laugh again. I want to take life lightly again. It's very hard to do when you're in a lot of pain. Or we think it is. There's kind of this shift where you can pop into that, where you can get there. And luckily enough for me, uh, meditation did it. I, I had never meditated before, and I did John Kabat Zinn's uh, mindfulness meditation. It's a body scan. And I felt my toes for the first time. And for me, my toes and my legs were the most painful parts. I couldn't put a sheet on them. And instead of feeling the pain, I was feeling all the blood flow and the life and the excitement in the cells. And so it gave me a whole new relationship to my body that even with the condition, without a single bit of the condition changing, suddenly I was at peace and joy and feeling gratitude. And so I started to build on that and I started to cultivate it. I mean, really cultivate it. So I decided I was not going to feel sorry for myself. I wasn't going to feel angry anymore. If I was going to die, I was going to die grateful. So I got a gratitude journal. It was just a journal. <laughs> I just turned it into one. And every time I felt sorry for myself or angry, which was frequent, I would write until I didn't feel that way anymore. So I wouldn't write three, you know, trite things. I would, I would write about tiny things. I would write about a nail, you know, or my earlobe or the dust in the room. Uh, I would really break it down. On hard days, I would think about how the things in my room came to be. You know, this was back before cell phones, really. So I didn't have a cell phone or a computer or TV in my room. I was basically in a white room by myself for many years. And so I was really breaking down very simple objects. And I would think about the sheet of my bed. How many people did it take to get that sheet into my room? Uh, where did it originate? Where was the cotton grown? Who grew the cotton? What was that family like? Right? I would imagine it all the way back and I would, I would make that into a several hour exercise and I would feel immense, immense gratitude for life. And so I started to really shift it that way. And I would say the inner work, the mental work, uh, or I wouldn't even call it work. It, it was um, an alleviation. It was light. It, uh, it made the illness worth it actually to experience that and to continue to experience it. And so unlike today with YouTube and, and getting to see so many, many people's stories who have gotten themselves into remission from impossible cases, I was kind of using these mental tricks and figuring out how to be okay right now. Some of them were through things like gratitude, 
I definitely used the laughter. I told myself I would do anything to heal and I was having a hard time laughing. <laughs> so I was like, right, I'm going to hold myself to that. I'm going to find something funny. So really old, old movies ended up working very well for me, the physical humor. So that was great. And then, uh, and then I would just kind of, uh, make little mind tricks. So for instance, the, the pain was one of the biggest hurdles for me. So I would break it down into a, an amount of time in which I could handle it. You know, a lot of chronic illness and, and pain as well. The difficulty is not just in what you're dealing with right now. It's the idea that you, you literally do not have a relief that you know of. And so you're thinking of the later today, tomorrow, the week after the next month, that year. And that is overwhelming. And so you'll see a very high suicide rate with chronic pain conditions, uh, especially those that medication doesn't touch because people don't see an out. So what I did was I broke it into an amount of time that I felt that I could tolerate that pain and that I could tolerate that pain reasonably. For me, that was 10 seconds. So for a couple of years, I just lived my life in 10 seconds and I, I never let myself go beyond that. So I would count in bed to 10 and I'd be like, cool, I can do this for 10 seconds. Start over, over and over and over again. And I swear that was an incredible trick because the cortisol came down. And for those of you who aren't familiar with cortisol, it's the stress hormone, which we need to wake us up in the morning. It does some very important things. But when we're chronically ill, we can't repair a human cell. We can't repair the nervous system. When our cortisol is high, that sounds like a catch-22 when you're in chronic pain. Of course, <laughs> of course, your cortisol is going to be high or chronic illness, right? Because everything is unstable. But if we can get the cortisol down through laughter, through joy, through gratitude, despite the circumstance, the body can get the edge. It knows how to heal itself. So it gives it that edge where it can repair that cell. Wow. That was so beautiful. I, I, I don't know how to describe that. Um, the, especially the last part where you talk about the 10 seconds, because I was just talking to a friend earlier today about how my goal is to drink a, a gallon of water a day. You know, that's one of the things I heard in terms of treating this autonomia is to stay hydrated. And a gallon of water seems so daunting right? Uh, it's just kind of like dealing with chronic pain where you're like, is this going to be the rest of my life? And I've broken it down into 10 sips. I go, you don't have to drink a gallon of water, Leo. Just take 10 sips. And that is so much more manageable and reasonable that I'm like, yeah, I'll do 10 sips. I got that. And so when you talk about <laughs> yeah. 10 seconds, like, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Like, it's like really breaking down what seems like a over like you know it's like you know you don't eat the whole whale you you take it bite by bite and and then eventually at some point um you know there, there's no more whale so or at least, you know at least hopefully when we're talking about chronic pain so yes. i want to get into the nutrition aspect of this yeah. because i um in a i'm in a group for sugar addicts it's called uh, the sugar and carb <laughs> uh, addicts anonymous yeah. And I've been in there for about three years and I, I had no idea how much uh, sugar affected my immune system, my mood, my sleep, yeah. my everything. Um, yeah. And I know that you're big on the, I want to say carnivore diet or is it, would you say Mediterranean diet? Like what's the, 
So what's oh. the nutritional piece for you uh, in terms of for dysautonomia? Dysautonomia, yes. For, I teach over 41 different diets based on the different conditions and also where someone is. But with dysautonomia, I like to use a ketogenic diet. Uh, it might be carnivore. It may be GAPS. I, I do far more GAPS car, uh, ketogenic. So that means soups that you make yourself, not bone broth, meat broth. Part of that is because in dysautonomia, we get, a, we get an imbalance in the immune system along with the nervous system. That's very important to get at. A carbohydrate requires four times as much water to process as a fat does. So when you're chronically dehydrated and your vasopressin hormone, which is the one that's very deregulated in dysautonomia, uh, when you're chronically dehydrated and you're not bringing electrolytes up into the cell, that's really the issue, right? A lot of people are almost over flooded with dysautonomia. I think this might be a tangent, but I'm going to throw it out there because I've been diving into research on this lately for the last few years. And <laughs> I think Tim Noakes, the South African uh, MD, PhD, is onto something because with all of the communities I've gone to visit in, say, Africa, Amazon, Arctic, they drink almost no water at all. And what he noticed with marathon runners is that they would get a form of encephalitis. Encephalitis is a swelling of the brain from overhydration. I think people with dysautonomia are actually overhydrated. I'm really wondering if there's not an encephalitis of the brain going on. We often can catch that easily in the beginning, but I'm wondering if it's chronic because what happens is I'm sure you've experienced is that you drink, you drink, you drink, but you still, one, typically feel thirsty. You urinate it all out and you don't seem to really absorb it into the cell, which is the real issue. With conditions like dysautonomia, or you could go to MS, Parkinson's, these, these nervous system conditions, it's rarely an issue in the serum. In, in the serum, if you test it, it's okay. It's within the cell, intracellular, I-N-T-R-A, intracellular, where you're not pulling things in to the cell. That's where the issue is. And that has to do with your vasopressin hormone. So I think people are actually overhydrated. What we're told with dysautonomia is to eat a lot of salt, which I am now addicted to. I love salt. <laughs> uh, to drink a lot of water uh, and have electrolytes, to elevate our legs, to use compression hose. Um, none of these are bad recommendations, but I don't know anyone with dysautonomia where that puts them to where they can go back to their old life or even close, really. And there's some useful medications that I don't see used as often anymore, but they were used when I was when I was ill to move the blood and that sort of thing. But really, I think diet-wise, I like to shift people into ketosis because they, they aren't using carbs for energy correctly. That part is usually broken now. So for many, many dysautonomia folks, when you look at if they can use glucose for energy, they're not able to, which gives us the opportunity to use fats. The other thing that it does is aside from the transition in the beginning, which is dehydrating, <laughs> because when you transition into ketosis, you lose water about four pounds or so. And with that, your electrolytes. After that, if you can make it through that difficult phase, then you stay hydrated more easily. And so it's beneficial for that. But it has other benefits. For instance, it's immensely helpful for rebuilding the nerves. Right? It's been used for nervous system disorders since the 1800s to control seizures, all sorts of things. I don't know anything better for rebuilding the nerves than the ketogenic diet. 
simply because the nervous system has a food. So does the immune system, right? And when you're chronically ill with something that's incurable, you want to rebuild. You don't want to medicate. You don't even medicate with food, I would say. You want to be free of it, right? You want to get your body robust again and, and strong and sturdy with grit. To do that, you actually have to rebuild. And it rebuilds itself all the time. But it needs certain nutrients to do so. So it needs a lot of fat to do so. And it needs a lot of B1 in a very specific form, benfotiamine. We've seen things like long COVID in medical history for over 2,000 years. Did you know that? No. Uh, no, I didn't. It's fascinating. Most people don't. I think it's fascinating. We actually have medical texts from back then. And we, we only saw it in Asian cultures, cultures that were eating white rice. And it was very, very rare. And it was called a different thing in each place. So in Japanese, it was called keke disease, K-E-K-K-E. -K -K -E which means leg disease, right? In Indonesia, it was called beriberi, which means I can't, I can't. And that's how you feel with the condition. You feel like you can't do anything. Sometimes you can't talk, you can't hold a phone, right? Where they would see this would be if a region lost their protein while consuming their white rice. So whether they were on a ship doing a long haul voyage, whether there was something where people got trapped into a region and they couldn't get specific forms of meat or fish that they would normally have with their rice, then you would see it. And you would only see it in those individuals. So why is that happening? Well, for them, at least, and this is the more classic form of dysautonomia, it was because when you eat white rice, white, not brown, although brown has its other issues, White rice depletes, it has a thiamine binding protein. Thiamine is B1. So when you eat it, it depletes your body of B1. Now, if you're eating pork or fish with that rice, you're maintaining your B1 levels and you're gonna be okay. However, if for any reason you aren't having that pork or, or the fish, you start to get a thiamine deficiency. And here's where that is relevant. You need thiamine to make your ATP energy. Can't make it without it. You need thiamine to remyelinate your nerves. Can't make it without it. You also need thiamine to control your cytokines. And as you know, with COVID, the issue was really the cytokines, not the COVID, right? And so every once in a while, we get one of these infections that affects the cytokines. And for those, those usually affect the healthy people, not the ill. And those with borderline B1 deficiency, which almost everyone has, because who eats two cups of pork anymore a day? No one, <laughs> no one, not unless you go to Cuba. So, <laughs> so it's very common to have a borderline B1. And typically the more healthy you try to eat, the less B1 you're going to have because it's found in very old traditional foods that people don't tend to eat anymore. So people are primed and they were very much primed when COVID hit for getting this exact thing of long COVID. Uh, so a couple things jump out to me. One is I can hear someone saying, wow, I've heard so many bad things about pork, especially, you know, bacon. And we hear about uh, the way meat is processed. And, and so I, you know, I don't want somebody to run out and grab some hot dogs and think that that's going to like boost their B1 levels. Uh, <laughs> so I, I would love for us to get um, a bit more specific in terms of uh, 
sources of pork and how to make sure we're not, uh, you know, eating pork that's going to add more uh, damage or cause more damage than, you know, what we're already experiencing? To be honest, I would use pork more preventatively. And then once you're in remission, usually by the time you've gotten illness, you need to do more than that. So back in the day when our microbiome was healthy, 2000 years ago, if you wanted a ship voyage, yes, bringing that in uh, would usually turn it around, but not for all, right? If your deficiency is deep enough, it's not enough. Two cups of pork a day gets your RDA, just your bare minimum. And you have to be able to absorb that. Absorption is a huge issue with dysautonomia, huge. You don't put blood to the digestive organs at the right time. So with pork, and let's talk about that, because honestly, there's misunderstandings about almost every food there is out there. Um, pork can be healthy or unhealthy, but overall, it's more healthy than unhealthy. The things that you need from pork will be found in the protein, not the fat. So bacon isn't going to do it, nor is hot dogs, unfortunately. Sorry, guys. I know they taste great, <laughs> but it would be more like the pork tenderloin that would have it. And then you know, once you have something like a dysautonomia or an MS where you have uh, autoimmunity going on, firstly, I'm a big fan of avoiding the lectins. Lectins are sticky plant proteins that deregulate the immune system. It's well studied. These are found typically only in plants and specific plants. There's healthy lectins and unhealthy lectins. We don't have a scientific term to discern. So all of you just know that there is a difference and some are good and some are bad for us, they all have a place in nature. But when an animal eats a high lectin food, it's gonna be found in the fat. And so that's where you're gonna find an issue with pork. With pork, it's typically fed a high lectin diet, and therefore you're gonna have a lot of lectins in the fat, and that's not helpful for getting better. The other issue with pork is that you can get a lot of omega-6s, which don't help either. So those are the two issues with pork. Now, there are many good sources, like my brother's farm, which is in Oregon. There's several farms around. Uh, if you get Spanish sourced, like acorn fed, you want to look for acorn fed, hazelnut fed, or uh, milk fed if you want to avoid the lectins. But again, I don't think I would be surprised if someone could cure themselves by going to pork. It would be more of a preventative method and a, a good safe measure once you're in remission to keep it in the diet. Oh yeah. Well, thank you for clearing that up. And, and it's so interesting because you brought up B1. I remember being on a cruise ship and, and it was a gentleman, um, he had, he was retired and he was having a lot of nerve damage, uh, sciatic pain down his right side, which I actually, uh, I've been experiencing for the past few months now. Oh, um, sorry. but he was saying that his doctor recommended that he get, uh, I think B12 shots. And mm -hmm. I know you're talking about B1, but yes. I, I I was fascinated by the fact that, you know, the doctor recommended uh, B12 for sciatic and, and nerve pain. And so the fact that you're now mm -hmm. saying B1 helps to deal with uh, the nerve pain, that's fascinating to me. Is there something more you want to add to that now that I've I've mentioned that? I'd love to, if you don't mind. A lot of times, for some people, the B12 will work. I had a friend who went from wheelchair to healthy very quickly with the B12. It was not the case for me and is not the case for most people. Part of the reason is that if you do have the thiamine deficiency, a real thiamine deficiency, you're not going to absorb any of the other Bs 
B1 is used like an enzyme for the other B vitamins. So it doesn't matter how much of the B6 or the B2 or the B12 you get, whether it's through diet or infusion, you're not going to use it properly if you don't have enough of the B1. And the B1 that's typically in multis is not the form that works. Uh, it's really the fat soluble form, benfotiamine or TTFD, which is all thiamine. Subthiamine is very good too, but you can't get it anywhere that I've found. So these things are, are really important. Um, for me, they did a lot of vitamin IVs. They were doing them twice a week for me because of my malnourishment. That alone didn't put me into remission, but it will for a lot of listeners. Each person is going to be at a different stage of their illness, and therefore a different amount of adjustment will pop some into remission, whereas others have to do a lot more, like I did. Um, I, I Unfortunately, I have to wrap this podcast up earlier than I wanted to because of a schedule change on my part. Mm -hmm. I want to apologize. But um, for the mm -hmm. listeners, uh, two things. One is, what does your typical meal look like? Breakfast, lunch, dinner. Ah. And then two, yeah. how people, how, who should reach out to you? If you're, you're talking oh, about sure. like the, the clients who want to reach out, what are they struggling with that you, you're like, I'm definitely your person. And, and then how can they reach out to you? Okay. Uh, let's see here. Well, I can eat whatever I want now just so you all know. Um, and that's that's really all that I work with. So when I work with someone, I work to get them to a place where they can go back to normal life. Usually you change your habits a lot. My lifestyle is very different than others. Um, I do eat lower carb than other people, but nothing hurts me if I eat it or if I eat it for a period of time, I don't get symptoms. So that's really my goal for everyone. And I personally don't, I haven't worked with diets of elimination on purpose for that reason. Having been sick myself, I think there's no greater reward than getting to true health. Uh, right now, I, I pulled my full private practice to be able to put all my knowledge into the medical community for dysautonomia. I saw this condition go from very obscure to over 70 million over the course of COVID. And so I'm trying to get it into households, into each doctor's uh, office so that they know what to do with it so that each of you can get better on your own. This is nothing that you can't do on your own. I do run dysautonomia groups and nervous system disorder groups. So that's neuropathy, things like that. But everything else I've dropped while I'm trying to digitize this knowledge so that you can get it into your hands yourselves and so that your doctors can guide you through it or you can do it on your own. I, I did it on my own. It can be done. It's tricky, but it can be done. So that's what I've been doing. Um, and that's all I work with right now. Now, once I'm done with that, I have book deals and I have all sorts of things that I want to get on, but I'm trying to digitize my knowledge so that the patients have the information and uh, get it to where it's, it's very affordable and doable because this is a long road. It's not quick. It's not easy. It's counterintuitive. And there's many different pieces to it. So although it's uh, somewhat simple, it's certainly not easy or necessarily fast. So I'm working on that. Beautiful. And then last, uh, I have two last questions. Mm -hmm. um, so what I've noticed, because no doctors have been able to answer this for me, and, and I understand if, if you don't have the answer or, or can guide in any way, but I've noticed that when I'm in an infrared sauna, I don't have any dysautonomia symptoms. But when I'm in a regular sauna, I I immediately need to flee in like less than a minute because my, my heart, my breathing and all those things become dysregulated. Do you have an explanation as to why I can do an infrared sauna, but not a regular sauna? Well, one, I would say the fact that you can exercise some days and not others. And the fact that you can do an infrared sauna 
means that you're close to the cliff of health, right? If you think of your health as by a cliff, when you got sick, you were on the edge of a cliff and you fell off. You can be very far from that edge or you can be very close. I would say you're not very far. So you could get back on that cliff and then away from the cliff uh, without too, too much effort in comparison to some others. So I just want to tell you that where you are is a very good place to be in terms of recovery the or potential recovery. The, uh, the steam saunas are devastating <laughs> for dysautonomia and it's due to the dehydration and the humidity. The infrared saunas, they work at a lower level. So you can do them at a lower heat level and it, it doesn't affect the body with dehydration in the same way, right? So you're really looking at dehydration with that. And then last question, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Yeah. Before you yes. kill yourself, what would you say to them, Mary? Personally, and you tell me if you have to edit this out, but I'm going to give you my honest answer. Especially if you're dealing with a chronic illness, dysautonomia, neuropathy, any of these things, I, I, would, I would genuinely sit down and do a meditation on your own death. I would fully imagine it. I would imagine the death, the funeral, who comes, what is life like afterwards. I would do an entire long meditation on that, thought meditation on that. Allow yourself to imagine life without yourself. It can free you up enormously. A lot of times the difficulty and pain, whether it's emotional or physical, is that we feel that we're obligated. And sometimes we just need to be given permission that we have a choice. And when we make the choice of living and we make it on a daily basis instead of a have to, a choice of, I know that that is an option. I've seen it. I know that things will go on. And that's kind of a relief that things will go on. So I'm choosing this. It becomes much lighter to go through the difficulty. The difficulty becomes lighter and it doesn't feel like a... Sisyphean task, right? Where you're just rolling the ball up the hill over and over. Instead, it becomes a, a challenge and an interesting one. So that's what I would do. I absolutely love that and will not be editing that. We're going to keep it as is. Uh, Mary Ruddick, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute we're going to get help calling the 988 or any of the international phone numbers that are listed in the show notes. If you're in Greece, if you're in Bogota, wherever you are, Chile, wherever you are in the world, there are numbers for you to call, chat, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one -on -one coaching. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Mary. Oh, thank you. And if I, if there is time, I'd like to add one more thing. And that just is, there are a million ways to climb the mountain and get to the top and get to remission and healing. So the ways that I have found, please don't feel that those are exclusive. People will get into remission in all different ways. And if what works for them doesn't work for you, that just means you knocked one off the list and you're that much closer. So don't ever feel like it's impossible for you. There's always another way to the summit. I love that. And I'll, I'll link to the, the, the groups that you mentioned uh, in the show notes. Thank you so much, listeners. Thank you, Mary. Bye. Thank you.